Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. So there has been recent studies showing that you can detect butyrate, a short-chain fatty acid, a chemical only made by your gut bugs, can be detected in your cerebral spinal fluid. So we now know that these gut bug metabolites are also in our CSF, in the fluid that bathes our brain. So I'm really fascinated to see what the research shows in the future about the role of short-chain fatty acids in mental health. What does butyrate do to our brain and our mood and our optimism? Because I suspect that it'll be doing good things because this substance made by our gut microbiome seems to be designed to keep us healthy. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if it was also helping to keep us happy. It's just fascinating to me, the whole, the whole happiness of happiness. That's Dr. Alan Desmond. And this this is episode 141 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Hey friends, how are you doing? I certainly hope that you've been keeping well. It's always great to be back here with you. If you're a first-time listener, welcome. Awesome to have you here with us, finally. I'm Simon Hill, your show host, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. Today's episode is part one of a two-part deep dive into all things gut health. Together with my team, we've gone back through the archives and pulled together a bunch of highlights from previous conversations with three gastroenterologists, Dr. Serena Pasricha, Dr. Alan Desmond, and Dr. Will Bolsowitz. So here's how these two parts are going down. Part one, today's episode, more of a general introduction to the microbiome, what it is, the benefits of short-chain fatty acids, the gut-brain connection, etc., as well as frequently asked questions, such as how does someone know if they need to repair their gut? And what is the best dietary pattern for promoting good gut health? And then part two is dedicated more to specific gut health issues, such as IBS, celiac disease, and inflammatory bowel disease. Honestly, going back over these, it made me realize I had forgotten how much science these three guests, these three amazing gastroenterologists had shared on this show. And it really does make sense that these are some of the most listened to episodes to date. That's my way of saying that I think you're in for a real treat. So please do find a quiet spot and let's dive deep together into the fascinating relationship that exists between our own human cells and the 38 trillion microbes that take up residence in our large intestine. The goal to give us all a better understanding of our body and how we can adjust various aspects of our lifestyle to feel better today and better for longer. Sound good? I hope so. Without further ado, here's part one. I hope you enjoy it and I'll catch you on the other side.
So, Dr. B, microbiome is certainly a buzzword. Can you define it for us so that we're all on the same page here from the outset? So, the gut microbiome is this community of living organisms that have been with us since the start of human evolution. And this includes bacteria, yeast or fungus, viruses, and then something very interesting that we know almost nothing about, which is called archaea. Archaea are single cellular organisms that are different than the bacteria and the fungi. And they have been around for four billion years. You'll find them all over our planet. You'll find them inside of a volcano. That's how resilient these things are. And they live inside of us. And we know very little about actually what they're doing right now. But there is this community of these four general types of organisms, bacteria, fungi, archaea, and viruses that live inside of us in harmony, in balance. And they're there for a purpose. They live in our skin. They are in our mouth. In, in women, they're inside the vagina. They basically carpet the entire body, and that includes the gut. And if you were to look at the colon, your large intestine, that, believe it or not, is the highest concentration of bacteria on literally the entire planet. I mean, you could take the gnarliest, most disgusting place that you can possibly imagine and you still have a higher concentration of bacteria inside of you. These are not passive bystanders here. They serve a purpose. They serve a critical purpose. They are actually incredibly involved, obviously, in the processing of our food. They are deeply involved in our metabolism. So let me give you an example. It's just crazy. This is hard to actually believe that this is true, but let me just tell you up front. They have reproduced this study a bazillion times. Like anyone who goes into a lab could do this. It's not hard to do. If you take an obese mouse and you transplant the gut bacteria from the obese mouse into a skinny mouse, you're not changing the diet. Like you're giving that skinny mouse the exact same food, the exact same calories, and the skinny mouse is going to become obese simply because you changed the gut bacteria. So our gut bacteria, I mean, we all know people who they can eat whatever they want and they're still skinny. And we know people who they really struggle. You know, maybe we don't give them enough credit for how hard they struggle to try to control what they eat, but they can't lose weight. And it probably relates back to these gut bacteria. They control the vast majority of our genetic code. 99% of the genes that you have are bacterial genes. 1% is human. 1% of your genes are human. 99% are your gut microbiome. About 15 years ago, a number of researchers around the world, for the first time, cracked the human genetic code. They were able to finally analyze our DNA in its entirety. And they really thought that once we do this, we're going to have it all figured out. This is it. This is the end of the road. And the results have been incredibly disappointing. And the reason why is because you are not born with diseases that you are going to develop no matter what. You are not predestined to develop the vast majority of the diseases that you could develop, but you have a predisposition. You have a genetic code that you carry, and these gut bacteria have the ability to influence the expression of your genetic code. And this is the reason why the way that you live, the way that you eat, can make a huge difference in whether or not you develop heart disease or cancer or stroke or all of these different things. 
all health starts in the gut. This is not just about digesting your food. This is not just about whether or not you have your bowel syndrome. This is how your entire body basically connects back to your health. You have 70% of your immune system that lives right there, right there in the gut, communicating directly to your microbiome. You cannot separate the two. You damage the microbiome, you will damage the immune system. You have 90% of serotonin produced in the gut. There are more than 30 neurotransmitters produced in the gut. And there are many different ways in which the gut is basically directly communicating with the brain and vice versa. So there's the brain-gut connection. There is the gut and the way that it communicates with the immune system. There's the way that the gut connects to our metabolism, whether or not we manifest diabetes. We often hear microbes described as good or bad. What is it that makes a microbe good? Consistently, the bacteria that produce short-chain fatty acids are associated with human health. Short-chain fatty acids are postbiotics. They are the byproduct of what the bacteria inside your colon are doing. You are not capable of producing them on your own. This is an example where we lean on our microbes. We rely on our microbes to be doing this for us. And what you get them from is fiber. And so you consume fiber. Fiber is your prebiotic. It feeds and nourishes the healthy bacteria. Those bacteria, they grow, they multiply, you get more of the healthy bacteria that process the fiber. So there's this sort of dietary momentum that you build, where by eating this way, you get better and better and better at eating that particular way when you keep doing it. And they release these short chain fatty acids that have effects throughout the entire body. I mean, right there in the colon, they basically shut down leaky gut. People talk about leaky gut and increased intestinal permeability. You want to fix that? This is what you need. You need short-chain fatty acids. You want to prevent colon cancer, the number two cause of cancer death in America. There are multiple mechanisms that we could go through. The short-chain fatty acids basically inhibit colon cancer. You want healthy gut microbes. This is what they do. They promote the growth of healthy gut microbes and directly inhibit the unhealthy ones like E. coli, salmonella, butyrate directly inhibits E. coli, salmonella. But the cool thing is it's not just the gut. They communicate with the immune system. They prevent heart disease, number one killer in the United States, I'm sure in Australia too. People are desperate for a cure to Alzheimer's. The pharmaceutical companies are spending billions of dollars trying to figure this out, how to work on Alzheimer's. And meanwhile, I'm over here eating my salad because short-chain fatty acids prevent Alzheimer's disease. We don't need a pill to do this. We can do it with our food. But the key is fiber. And 97% of Americans are not even getting a minimal amount of fiber. So when we talk about good versus bad, there's this one side where you get, you know, basically fiber and you feed these microbes and they thrive and you get health benefits. And then there's the flip side. And we know this, by the way, if anyone wants to read one of the most powerful studies to be published in this field, you go to Nature, which is literally the number one journal in the entire planet. It's impossible to get your study published in Nature. If a cure for cancer comes out today, that's where it's going to be published. Nature, number one scientific journal on the planet. 2014, doctors Lawrence David and David Turnbaugh. And they published this study where basically this was a game changer. They took 10 people. This is all you needed, 10 people. And they basically changed their diet dramatically. And they checked their microbiome every single day. They either gave them a completely plant-based diet or a completely animal-based diet. If you look at the animal-based diet, eggs, cheese, meat, but if you look at the macros, the macros were consistent with the keto. It was a keto diet before people were talking about the keto diet because it was published in 2014. 
So you give this plant-based diet, what do you see? You see the growth, a bloom of these healthy microbes, Roseburia and Bifidobacterium and Lactobacillus that help us to process our fiber and produce short-chain fatty acids. And then the flip side, they flip them over and they give them the animal-based diet. Changes in less than 24 hours. Loss of those microbes, the ones that produce the short-chain fatty acids that are so healthy, you see less of those. Of course, you see a drop in short-chain fatty acids because you're not eating fiber. So you can't produce them. You're not, you're not giving your body the substrate that it needs to produce short-chain fatty acids. And then you see a bloom of this other group of bacteria, some of which are disturbing. There's this one called Bilophila wadsworthia. And Bilophila wadsworthia has been clearly associated with inflammatory bowel disease. So literally within five days of switching to this keto-based diet or animal product-based diet in the absence of any plant food at all, you have already seen dynamic changes in the gut microbiome where you are starving your microbes of what they need, the short-chain fatty acids. You are losing the anti-inflammatory bacteria. You are promoting the pro-inflammatory bacteria. And you are seeing this, it's like basically a convict within the, the bacterial world, this biophilia wadsworthia, who wants to give you inflammatory bowel disease. That's what he wants to do. He's like an arsonist. And you are seeing him show up on the scene and you are empowering that bacteria. Do you develop inflammatory bowel disease in five days? No, of course you don't. But if you have the right genetics and you eat this way, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And this is why we're seeing the explosion of inflammatory bowel disease around the world. You know, third world countries like Brazil, they didn't have this problem. They didn't have this problem if you went back to the 1970s in Brazil, and now it's blowing up in these countries. 11%, 15% increases in Brazil in inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's and ulcerative colitis by the year. They don't even know how to take care of it because it's not a part of their medical world because they didn't have this condition. We had it here in the United States because we're eating more meat than any country in the world. But here comes inflammatory bowel disease. And so they start coming to our conferences and starting to ask us to teach them, hey, how do we go about doing this? But the point is this study by Turnbaugh and Lawrence David, Nature 2014, showed us that within 24 hours, dramatic changes in the microbiome and what you eat matters. And there's dramatic differences between the two. So clearly diet matters. Let's break this down a little more. What specifically is key to supporting our microbiome and boosting the production of these short-chain fatty acids? The single greatest predictor of a healthy gut microbiome is the diversity of plants in your diet. If it's a vegan diet, whole foods, plant-based, maximum plant-based diversity, from my perspective, then we're talking about what is potentially the healthiest diet based upon what science has shown us for a healthy gut microbiome and enjoying all the downstream effects that come with that. But if you restrict it, if you say, I'm not going to eat this, I'm not going to eat that, then you are not doing optimal plant-based diversity. And you can take the same food, the same fruit or vegetable, and you can change it through cooking. And in some cases, you could argue it's better, you could argue it's worse. But the point is, it's not exactly the same and in many cases, it's definitely easier for your body to process and digest. You know, take tomatoes, for example. When you cook a tomato, you, you release the lycopene. You get more of that by cooking your food. So the point is that there's advantages in many cases to cooking the food. And when we're talking about processing these foods, the hardest part for us to process is not the protein. The hardest part for us to process is not the fat. 
we are built as humans with what we need to be able to break down those things, the proteases, the bile, the lipases. We have those things. The hard part for us to process are the carbs, specifically the fiber. And the reason why it's hard for us to process is that we have outsourced it. We have outsourced the entire process of digesting complex carbohydrates. We as humans lack the ability to do this by ourselves. If I sterilize your gut, you get nothing out of fiber and it's just going to make you cramp up and miserable. But these microbes that live inside of us, they actually work in teams. They work in teams, not individuals. And it's a really cool study that was done by this guy, Lipping Zhao from Rutgers. And he basically showed that they work as what he calls a team of microbes that break down your fiber for you. Okay, let's unpack dysbiosis a little bit more here. A word that is used here and there to describe uh, an unhealthy balance of bacteria in our gut. What are the various parts of dysbiosis and how can we heal this through eating more fiber? All right. So let's start with the dysbiosis question and then let's bring it back in a moment to talking about fiber. Three parts to dysbiosis, damage to the microbes, increased intestinal permeability, release of bacterial endotoxin. Short-chain fatty acids, which are produced by our microbes when they consume prebiotic fiber or prebiotic-resistant starch. Short-chain fatty acids reverse dysbiosis. They achieve a healthy balance in the microbes. They enrich the good guys, your anti-inflammatory microbes. They directly impair the unhealthy microbes like E. coli or salmonella. They directly impair those microbes. In doing that, they repair the tight junctions. And when the tight junctions get fixed, bacterial endotoxin is not leaking into the blood anymore. When you look at the three steps to dysbiosis, short-chain fatty acids address all three. So the question is, where do we get them? And the answer I've already given to you is fiber. But we need to break down fiber a little bit more. Fiber is a complex topic. There's not even an estimate of how many types of fiber exist in nature. We don't even know. Honestly, it could be billions. To keep it simple, we put it into two categories, soluble and insoluble fiber. Insoluble fiber means that if you were to put it in this glass of water and stir it up, it would still have grit. You can't get rid of the grit. All right, that's the roughage. Soluble fiber, if you put it into this glass of water and you stir it up, it disappears. These two types of fiber, these are broad categories. And each plant has a mix of its own soluble and insoluble fiber. Every single plant is different. The soluble fiber, you eat it, goes through your mouth, down the esophagus, stomach, 15 feet of small intestine. It is completely unchanged in that moment when it arrives in your colon. It's one of the few things along with resistant starch that has not changed. And it gets down there and your microbes, the anti-inflammatory ones, the good ones, get into a feeding frenzy. They go to town on it. And when they do, what I just described more good guys, less bad guys, and then the release of short-chain fatty acids. Well, the insoluble fiber largely is passing through. Helps to mobilize your bowel movements, keep them moving through. But in terms of being prebiotic, this idea that they feed and nourish the healthy microbes and allow them to thrive, insoluble fiber is generally not doing that. Every single plant has its own unique mix of fiber. Some soluble, some insoluble. Every single plant is going to be unique. And because of that, it's going to feed a unique mix of bacteria that live in your colon. Okay. So your food choices will reflect themselves 
in the makeup of your microbiome. When you eat a certain food, you eat a tomato, the microbes that thrive when you eat a tomato are going to multiply. On the flip side, if you take the tomato out of your diet, the microbes that I just described that thrive, they actually recede. They're starving. They're not getting the nutrition that they need in order to be able to thrive and grow. So when we create a diverse diet with as many different types of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, and nuts, legumes, every single plant in that diverse diet is supporting a different community of microbes. And when you diversify it, you're going to have a diverse microbiome. And biodiversity, my friend, biodiversity is the word of the year because it affects all ecosystems, including your gut, which is a small one. When you lose biodiversity, it's unhealthy. Biodiversity is also relevant to what we see happening in the Amazon rainforest with extinction events. And that's creating instability within that ecosystem. Any ecosystem, biodiversity is good. The point being that you want a diverse diet because that supports a diverse microbiome. Now, are there certain foods that we select out? Let me put it this way. If every single plant is a friend, I want you to have as many friends as possible. But it's completely fine to recognize that there are superfoods that you can turn into your best friends. And I have an acronym that I use called F-Goals. F for fiber. F-Goals. F stands for fermented and fruit. I think the fruit is very important for the gut microbiome. G is for greens and grains. Grains meaning whole grains. O is for omega-3 superseeds. Flax, chia. A, aromatics. Onions, garlic, shallots, leeks. Great source of prebiotic fiber, by the way. L is for legumes. Legumes are foundational foods for the gut. Your gut thrives on the consumption. Anyone who tells you that legumes damage the gut, that's not what the studies say. S, I had a tough time on S because I wanted to say shrooms. I wanted to say seaweed or sea veg, but I had to give it to my favorite out of all of them, which is sulforaphane. And what I'm referring to here, sulforaphane, is the phytochemical that you will find in cruciferous vegetables that absolutely crushes cancer, crushes it. Hundreds of studies to support the benefits of sulforaphane. But what is the top source? Broccoli sprouts. If you think broccoli is healthy, and if you think sulforaphane is healthy, broccoli sprouts, the immature form, have literally up to 100 times more sulforaphane than what you will find in mature broccoli. So what's cool is we're talking about cruciferous vegetables, okay? And broccoli sprouts are an example of what I'm about to describe to you. But basically, cruciferous vegetables contain something that's supposed to protect them from invaders, okay? Protect them from bugs, protect them from other animals. And what it is, is they contain separate containers of something called a glucosinolate and an enzyme called myrosinase. It's fascinating to think about that these plants evolved to have this because they're separated. They don't connect to each other. The only way that you can connect them to each other is to break the plant, which is what you're doing when you eat the food. And when you do this, it sets off a chain reaction where basically the glucosinolate mixes with the myrosinase and you create isothiocyanates. Isothiocyanates, one example is sulforaphane. These are cancer crushers. There's many different types. Sulforaphane is just one example. But the key here is that the myrosinase, the myrosinase is always the enzyme. So you can change out the glucosinolate. There's different glucosinolates out there. The myrosinase is always the enzyme. 
And here's what's kind of cool. Myrosinase is temperature sensitive. The glucosinolate really is not. So if you heat up your food, if you cook your food, if you, for example, kale, right? If I buy frozen kale, well, that frozen kale has been blanched prior to them freezing it. And so the myrosinase has been eliminated from the product. So now I'm not going to get as much benefit from the isothiocyanate because I lack the enzyme. So here's what you do. If you're using this frozen product or a cooked product, you steam your broccoli. Okay, you've deactivated the myrosinase. You have two options. You can either add in raw, fresh cruciferous of any variety. Go down the line, pick any of the cruciferous vegetables, sprinkle them in with your other food, and you're going to get the myrosinase from the fresh vegetable. But the other thing that you can do that's actually incredibly simple is mustard seed. So mustard seed powder has the myrosinase intact. For whatever reason, it survives the process. And so you can take mustard seed powder and give it a little sprinkle on your cooked broccoli or whatever it is. It's kitchen chemistry. And you are producing your isothiocyanates and you are blasting cancer. I can tell you I sent Tanya absolutely nuts doing this. I still do it now, but there was a while there where it was every single night, broccoli with mustard seed powder. I just think that it's so cool, these little tricks that exist. I'm wondering about the gut-brain connection. How are these two parts of our body communicating with one another and what types of things may someone experience from a cognitive point of view if they do have poor gut health? There's a two-way street of communication that occurs between the gut and the brain, and it goes both ways. There are over 30 neurotransmitters produced in the gut. 90% of serotonin is produced in the gut. Now, I will say that the serotonin produced in the gut, we don't believe it crosses the blood-brain barrier, but there's serotonin precursors that cross the blood-brain barrier. There's other neurotransmitters that are able to cross, and there's communication between the two using a major nerve in the body called the vagus nerve. So they're able to communicate with each other. And the key here is taking care of the gut. And let me give a shout out to my favorite thing, one of the big themes, which is short-chain fatty acids. Butyrate, produced in your gut, is capable of traveling all the way through your bloodstream and arriving at the brain. And what's kind of cool is the brain has a protective wall in the same way that the gut does, right? So we know the model of dysbiosis is three parts. Damage or alteration of the gut microbiota, the bacteria, number one. Number two is increase intestinal permeability. You basically break down the tight junctions between the cells. You increase intestinal permeability. Some people call that leaky gut. And number three is release of bacterial endotoxin. Now we look at what butyrate does in the gut and it fixes all three of those things. Fixes the microbiota, corrects that, helps the good guys to grow, corrects increased intestinal permeability, corrects increased bacterial endotoxin. Powerful stuff. But what's amazing to me is that butyrate can pass through the bloodstream and get all the way up to the blood-brain barrier. And the blood-brain barrier is conceptually very similar to the blood-gut barrier. And the butyrate is actually capable of helping to repair the blood-brain barrier. So people who have damage to the gut or leaky gut, if we want to call it that, will often say they have brain fog. And we struggle to exactly say what brain fog is. But I believe that brain fog is indicative of damage to the blood-brain barrier. And when you get adequate amounts of fiber in your diet through plant-based diversity, you create butyrate. And the butyrate is capable of traveling all the way up there to your brain to basically repair the blood-brain barrier. 
And in addition to that, it has other things that it does in the brain, such as it improves focus, concentration. I'll just tell you, like in writing this book that I just did, I mean, there's no way, there's no way I could have done this when I was eating the standard American diet a couple of years ago. The amount of focus, the amount of neuroplasticity, or I could the ability to adapt to what I was thinking about. And there's no way I could have done it before. So it's, it's interesting. And I think it's all completely legit. I've got a question on the happiness effect. You write about this in your book. I'm interested, what is the connection between the food we eat and the health of our gut and then how that can affect our mood? So it struck me for years now, Simon, and I'm sure you'll have seen the same thing, that happiness comes up all the time when you're a doctor or a clinician or a coach or an advocate for making the switch to a healthy whole food plant-based diet. Whatever reason people adopt a whole food plant-based diet for, whether it's to you know maybe control their body weight, reach a healthier body weight, improve their digestive health, if it's for Crohn's or colitis or diverticular disease, or whether they're doing it to reduce their cholesterol or because they've been diagnosed with heart disease, or whether they're doing it because of animal welfare concerns or environmental concerns. When you check back in with them after about six weeks and you say, so how's it going? How's the dietary change going for you? Almost invariably, they say, great, I feel lighter. I feel more energetic. I had someone recently who's a pretty well-known chef here in the UK who's used to eat a kind of a low-carb paleo kind of diet, you know, like uh, chicken breast and veg would be his typical dinner. So he made the change to the whole food plant-based diet. And he told me like six weeks ago, he said, I'm being nicer to people. So, so what is this? What is this happiness effect? And maybe I've always thought maybe losing weight, controlling your blood pressure, reducing your impact on the environment reducing the risk of future zoonotic pandemics. Maybe all of those things make you happy. And certainly, if I've had a stressful day at the hospital, hitting the kitchen and chopping veg chills me out and cheers me up. So maybe there's something there. But there are some really good physiological reasons why food might make us happier. And I got to say, the science on this isn't definitive. This is like a fascinating area of interest to me. But we know when we take animal products out of our diet, we reduce our intake of arachidonic acid and advanced glycation end products, both products that are linked to chronic inflammation and have been uh, linked to depression. We increase our intake of antioxidants and vitamins, and we know that higher serum levels, higher blood levels of plant-derived nutrients and phytonutrients has been strongly linked to less risk of depression and higher levels of optimism. It also affects how our body metabolizes tryptophan, pushing more tryptophan into our bloodstream. And that's a chemical that our body needs to make the happy hormone, serotonin. So if you're eating a higher carbohydrate diet, your body mobilizes more tryptophan and that crosses your blood-brain barrier and may increase your production of tryptophan. Serotonin, your production of serotonin, serotonin being 5-hydroxytryptophan. So the link there is obvious. We've talked before about the overwhelming health benefits of short-chain fatty acids like butyrate and acetate or propionate, substances that are only in your bloodstream because your gut microbes made them 
And your gut microbes make them most efficiently when you eat a high fiber diet. So there has been recent studies showing that you can detect butyrate, a short chain fatty acid, a chemical only made by your gut bugs can be detected in your cerebral spinal fluid. So we now know that these gut bug metabolites are also in our CSF and in the fluid that bathes our brain. So I'm really fascinated to see what the research shows in the future about the role of short-chain fatty acids in mental health. What does butyrate do to our brain and our mood and our optimism? Because I suspect that it'll be doing good things because this substance made by our gut microbiome seems to be designed to keep us healthy. So it wouldn't surprise me at all if it was also helping to keep us happy. In the US now, one of the reasons that a whole food plant-based diet is recommended as the first choice of a diet to recommend to someone who's just been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes is because of a huge study that was done here in the UK, which was published in the BMJ a few years ago, where they used a whole food plant-based diet or plant-predominant diet to control type 2 diabetes. In that study, they looked at levels of optimism and markers for depression amongst the individuals they were treating, and they found that they just got happier the quality of life and their optimism and psychological stress diminished when they moved on to a plant-based diet. And I remember seeing one study a few years ago where they just got people to eat more fruits and vegetables. And if they got people to eat eight servings of fruit and vegetables per day, starting from like two or three, it had the same positive effect on their mental health as moving from being unemployed to gainfully employed. So, uh, yeah, it's it's just fascinating to me, the whole, the whole happiness effect. Tell me, is there any science that would support people increasing their animal food intake from a gut health perspective? It's just the opposite. You know, I was um, reading a study when I was traveling over here from the UK earlier this week. So just published this week, a Dutch cohort study where they looked at a population and looked at dietary and lifestyle risk factors for developing fatty liver disease. So fatty liver disease is basically when your healthy liver develops deposits of fat within it, and having fat deposited in your liver isn't good for your liver health. So this is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? This is no alcohol involved, but you've got excess fat deposited on your liver. If we do blood tests on you, we can find no evidence that you've got a liver disease per se. You know, you don't have an autoimmune problem. You don't have a viral infection. It's not because you're drinking too much alcohol, but you've got this thing called fatty liver disease. And we see it in patients who are obese, particularly carrying too much weight around their middle. And we kind of view it as inevitable. And in my practice on my gastroenterology ward, when I've got people coming in very unwell now, we're seeing patients coming in all the time. I can think of just two examples already this year, and we're in February. The two examples were kind of elderly ladies, overweight, who've come into hospital with pneumonia. So they've got a a chest infection. It's really common in, in the elderly, unfortunately. And they were both pretty unwell with their pneumonia, but then they got really sick because it turned out they had liver cirrhosis. And when you have liver cirrhosis and you become unwell, you can get really unwell because you don't have that reserve to clear the toxins out of your system. And you can become drowsy and encephalopathic and you can have problems with internal bleeding, et cetera, et cetera. And we're used to seeing that in patients with alcohol problems. But now we're seeing it in lovely little old ladies who come in with pneumonia 
And we do our scans. We say, well, you've got cirrhosis of the liver. We're usually explaining it to their family members. She hasn't touched a drop of alcohol in her life. We say, well, it's fatty liver disease. And in fact, fatty liver disease leading to cirrhosis of the liver. I I think I read that it's the second or number one indication for referral for liver transplant in females in certain parts of the United States now. So a study just published this week looking at dietary risk factors for developing fatty liver disease. And the first startling thing, this was a Dutch study. They were looking at middle-aged people, I think between the ages of 20 and 70. I think they had about a thousand people who they evaluated. And they reckoned that 21% of that population had fatty liver disease. And when they looked at their dietary risk factors, it was animal protein intake and processed foods. So I was looking through that paper and they were saying, okay, so your odds ratio, if you eat a lot of animal protein is like 2.5. Your odds ratio, if you eat a lot of processed food is, you know, whatever the number was. And as I was reading, I said, you could cut out the word fatty liver disease and you could paste in inflammatory bowel disease. It's the same message, no matter who does the study whatever their agenda is, they're coming up with the same answers. Eat a lot of plants, go to plants for your protein, cut out the meat, cut out the processed food, whole food, plant-based. So the Eat Lancet report, this is an independent group of scientists, medical doctors, and also climate change experts who were given a very difficult remit, actually. So they were asked to go off and study the body of evidence as it exists and to come up with a kind of a, a dietary blueprint for everybody in the world. So that includes the 800 million people in the world who are chronically undernourished and can't get enough calories where they live. And it includes the two and a half billion people in the world who are suffering from another form of malnutrition. So they're obese or overweight and suffering the consequences of that and everybody in between. So let's talk about protein, okay? So this independent panel of experts, international group, who were prioritizing human health, but also had an eye on planetary health, which is completely the same thing. What's the point in having a bunch of healthy humans if the planet is unsustainable? So they looked, they talked about protein. So we all need to consume protein. It's really important for human health. We probably need about 0.7 or 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight per day just to be healthy. So they looked at the various sources of protein. And when it came to red meat, and I think I'm quoting directly here, red meat is not essential the optimal intake may be zero grams per day. The more red meat you consume, the more likely you are to have a chronic disease. The relationship is linear. But if you are going to eat red meat, please limit your consumption to 16 grams per day, which is nothing. So if you want, you can have 100 grams at the weekend. So maybe a little bit of red meat at the weekend, but it's optional. It's not essential And if you eat more than that, you will get a chronic disease. And they said, look, the evidence for very tiny amounts of consumption is a bit fuzzy. It's not conclusive. So we're going to give you your 100 grams a day. They then talked about poultry. And they said, yeah, poultry is kind of like a less dangerous version of red meat. So yeah, okay, you can have some poultry. And particularly if you live somewhere where that's your available source of protein, because obviously they're trying to provide a dietary blueprint for people who are living in areas with limited resources. So if that's your available source of protein, okay, yeah, have some poultry, but they suggested limiting your consumption to, I think it was um, about one third of a chicken breast per day. Okay. So that was them on poultry. Then they went on to eggs. And again, just remember, this isn't PCRM or Neil Bernard, or Dr. Greger, or me writing this report. It's an independent group of scientists. So they then turned to eggs. 
And they said, okay, humans do need protein and there is protein in eggs and there's calories in eggs. But when we reviewed the evidence, we didn't see any studies that convincingly told us that eating eggs is safe because they've got so much cholesterol, et cetera, in them. And they commented that the studies that show that adding eggs to your diet is safe all look at adding eggs to the standard Western diet. So you, you can't interpret them. So you're taking a bad diet and you put a little bit more badness on top. So they said, so basically we couldn't find any convincing evidence that eating a lot of eggs is a safe thing to do. So again, if you need a source of protein and there's eggs available, eat some eggs, but eat one and a half eggs per week. And please note that if you replace those eggs with plant-based sources of protein, you'll actually be doing yourself a favor because you're going to reduce your risk of chronic disease. And then they went on to legumes, including beans, flippies, lentils, and soya-based foods. And they said, these are a great source of protein. They're wrapped up in plants. If you eat these foods, it'll reduce your risk of chronic disease, reduce systemic inflammation, reduce coronary vascular disease, reduce your risk of colorectal cancer. Kind of the opposite of everything we just said about animal products. And they said, well, eat about a kilo of these foods a week. You know, eat them in abundance, which is what I've been saying to my patients for years, just think about inflammatory bowel disease. And then they came to nuts and they said, look, nuts are also, you know, a pretty good source of protein. They're also a great source of polyunsaturated fats. So, you know, they recommended eating about 100 grams of nuts per day. So, in fact, they just described a whole food plant-based diet and these are an independent panel of experts. So I think the, the medical consensus is changing. Those guys didn't describe the classic paleo diet or the keto diet. They described the whole food plant-based diet. And in fact, just a few weeks before the Eat Lancet report and the Canadian recommendations came out, there was a separate paper published, and that was by a scientific group that were sponsored by the World Health Organization. So I think that paper is going to, again, inform dietary recommendations around the world. So in that paper, they did a meta-analysis where they take lots of studies and combine the results. And they had data, long-term data from 4,500 people uh, that combined 243 papers and they looked at whole unrefined carbohydrate consumption. They looked at fiber consumption and they looked at rates of type 2 diabetes, obesity, coronary vascular disease, and again, colorectal cancer, something which is wrapped up in my work all the time. And their conclusion really was the more unrefined carbohydrates and whole grains that you consume, the better. And they didn't find an upper limit of benefit, actually. I think within the... Um, I'd have to recheck the paper, but I think the people within their cohort who were eating the most were getting like 60% of their calories from unrefined carbohydrates, but the benefit line was still going up. So they just said, yeah, eat lots of unrefined carbs, eat lots of whole grains. Why are there a lot of claims online and cookbooks out there talking about the benefit of specific animal foods for gut health? Is there any science that speaks to animal foods and helping heal the gut? Well, there's, there's a couple of things to cover there, really. Um, number one, paleo diet. So as I see that promoted generally, well, look, obviously it's probably got nothing to do with what people ate in the Paleolithic era, which was several million years long. And we could, you know, we've seen studies and fecal studies and stuff. We know that people in the Paleolithic era probably ate a wide variety of foods, depending on the environment they were living in. And that if they lived in an area where there was plants, they probably ate a lot of plants. And if they ate in an area where there were no plants, they probably didn't eat any plants. So when we talk about the, the, let's call it the modern paleo diet, so the diet that's promoted, it, it actually does have a lot of advantages over the standard Western diet. 
because I think they cut out all the dairy, they cut out all the processed crap, and they ask people to eat certain plants and eat them in abundance. So I'm on board with all of that. So there's, if you have a Venn diagram of paleo and whole food plant-based, there's a huge overlap. So if you are on a standard Western diet and you're eating a lot of chips and processed food and, and what have you, and a lot of dairy, and you move to the kind of classic modern paleo diet, I, I bet you're going to feel better. You're probably going to have improved energy levels. Even if you have inflammatory bowel disease, you've taken out a lot of the stuff that is harmful, but you're consuming a lot of red meat. And it's, there's lots of aspects to the paleo diet that are probably beneficial. And when people make that shift, they're going, God, this is great. I, I feel so much better. My energy levels are better. I've lost some weight. My bowel symptoms have improved. But in terms of long-term health, it's not a good option. Now, we saw papers published last year looking at health outcomes in huge populations followed for like 25 years. And those studies showed us very clearly that eating a high-protein, low-carb diet, especially a high-animal protein diet, is going to take years off of our life expectancy. So in one study last year, they estimated, having looked at the data, that if you're an average 55-year-old, and if you were eating a kind of paleo-style, low-carb, high-animal-protein diet, you've reduced your life expectancy by about five years because of your increased risk of coronary vascular disease, obesity, type 2 diabetes, and colorectal cancer. So there are certain trends out there in the kind of plant-based world, for example, being you know completely fruitarian. Now, I've seen medical studies showing benefits for that, but if you're eating only fruit, I mean, there's a lot of benefits from eating perhaps even, you know, six or 800 grams of fruit per day. But if you're getting all your calories from fruit, I imagine drink, you're consuming several kilograms of fruit per day. One issue there could be fructose, so fruit sugar, which is a FODMAP. It's something that needs to be broken down by your gut microbiome. And if you're consuming two and a half kilos of fruit or three kilos of fruit every day, you're very likely going to get some bloating. You may even induce small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. It's about balance and diversity. The PCRM power plate, which you're familiar with, is just a really quick visual guide to that. Isn't it? about a quarter of the plate is whole grains. Then you've got your legumes and your fruits and vegetables. Okay. You know, so balance. How do you feel about an animal-based ketogenic or carnivore diet that we see various people talking about online? Do you think people are running the gauntlet here? Well, it makes me nervous, you know? And I mean, not just in terms of colorectal cancer risk, I mean, overall health risk. But when we talk about colorectal cancer risk, the advice that I give to my patients and patients who come through my hospital who've taken part in a screening program and have been found to have precancerous polyps or been given a clean bill of health so they've got no polyps, we will send them a glossy information leaflet a few weeks later, which explains to them to minimize their intake of red and processed meat, to maximize their intake of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes, to eat foods made from soybeans, to eat calcium-rich, fiber-rich foods. Now, a carnivore diet is the exact opposite of everything I just said, right? And when we look at the data, I mean, the O'Keefe paper is startling. So not only are you harnessing all the negative effects of a standard Western diet, 
you're kind of you're amping them up, right? You're magnifying them. So it, it makes me worried, Simon. But although I mean, I was saying this to someone recently, right? Although the carnivore diet advocates speak very loudly and are surely a force to be reckoned with on social media, etc. I think in 10 years as a gastroenterologist, I've met one person who was eating a carnivore diet. That was last year. And they'd been recommended it by a holistic health professional. So that's one patient in 10 years of practice. So I think out in the real world, this just doesn't appeal to people. No, you're you're right. It's a very vocal bubble online, but in the scheme of things, probably being followed by very few, thankfully. What about gluten and IBS? It seems experts have different opinions on this. So first off, if you have celiac disease, you have a gluten allergy and you cannot take gluten. Okay, that's for patients with celiac disease, because if you consume gluten with celiac disease, you increase your chance for developing small bowel cancers and lymphoma. Okay, if you do not have celiac disease, you could potentially have gluten sensitivity. Some people do report discomfort and bloating and gas when they eat gluten. I personally think gluten is healthy and it's important. And if you can eat it, you should. There was a research study, I think they looked at like 100,000 people and they wanted to see if people cut out gluten, what it did to their cardiovascular disease and their heart health. And they found that people who cut out gluten in this 100,000 patient population, they were more likely to have heart attacks. And I think the reason is, is because gluten contains a lot of fiber and prebiotics. So like, I do not follow a gluten-free diet. I do not recommend a gluten-free diet unless it's necessary. I think gluten is actually healthy for patients. Now, many patients with irritable bowel syndrome might have some gluten sensitivity. And in that case, if that's your food sensitivity, then yes, limit it or eat it in moderation. But if you do not have a problem, like I I see many people who are like, I want to eat a healthy lifestyle. And so I've gone gluten-free. And then I'll ask them, you know, have you ever had symptoms when you eat gluten? And they say no. So I don't think it's a healthy lifestyle choice to go gluten-free. I often hear of the low FODMAP diet as a tool for helping people with IBS. Walk me through what the low FODMAP diet is and how it should and perhaps shouldn't be used clinically. So low FODMAP, so FODMAP stands for fermentable oligo dye monosaccharides and polyols. It's a mouthful, so we'll call it FODMAPs. FODMAPs are short-chain carbohydrates that are not easily digestible in our GI system and in our gut. So what happens is we eat foods that have FODMAPs, they get into our gut, and the bacteria ferment it. And so these foods do cause bloating and gas, and some people can experience discomfort. So at Monash University, they said, okay, well, let's take patients with irritable bowel syndrome, and let's take healthy patients, and let's see if we put them on low FODMAP diets, do their symptoms get better? And they did find that patients with irritable bowel syndrome on a low FODMAP diet had statistically significant and clinically relevant improvement in their bloating, gas, and discomfort. So one thing I will say about that is that there were only 30 patients with irritable bowel syndrome in the study, and there were only eight controls. But this research, you know, like I said, there's no magic pill. There is no easy fix for patients with irritable bowel syndrome. So when this study came out, 
a lot of us, myself included, were very excited. And we thought, you know, we have a diet that might help patients with irritable bowel syndrome. And so many gastroenterologists started to use this almost as first-line therapy. Okay, you have irritable bowel syndrome. Here's a low FODMAP diet. Try it, and then let's see. However, what we are realizing now is that the low FODMAP diet is actually not a healthy diet. I look at it like this, and I tell my patients, the low FODMAP diet will give you short-term gain for long-term pain. You might feel better in the short term, but what you're doing to your gut is actually very harmful. The research studies have shown that if you follow a low FODMAP diet, you get elevated inflammatory markers, specifically IL-6 and IL-8. You get changes in your gut microbiome. You get decreased gut microbial diversity, which is harmful. You get lower bifidobacterium, which is one of the healthy gut bacteria. You get lower short-chain fatty acids, which we know is helpful for promoting good bacteria. And you can develop nutritional deficiencies. You can develop vitamin A, zinc, iron, B12 vitamin deficiencies. So now the research is showing, now that we've done more research, we are learning more about the gut microbiome. I think a lot of us have changed. And I really do not recommend my patients follow a low FODMAP diet. If you look at the guidelines, the World Gastroenterology Association and the American Gastroenterology Association, they don't really recommend the low FODMAP diet. It's considered a second-line therapy if other things fail. And then they say that the evidence is weak at best. Because what's happening when you're doing a low FODMAP diet, some parts are great. You're cutting out dairy, which I do encourage patients to do because dairy can be quite inflammatory. You're cutting out artificial sweeteners, which I also think is a healthy life decision and, and life choice and good for your gut health. But the problem is, is you're cutting out an enormous number of fruits and vegetables. You're cutting out legumes, broccoli, beets, asparagus, and these are healthy. And and we know that diversity in fruits and vegetables is important. So if you're limiting that, it's not creating a good environment for your gut health. So I now kind of shy away from the low FODMAP diet. There was a study that was done recently, and they compared the low FODMAP diet to yoga over 12 weeks. And this was done in irritable bowel syndrome patients. And they found that the same results were achieved with yoga as were a low FODMAP diet. I think there are harmful side effects and risks of doing the low FODMAP diet. There are no harmful risks and side effects of doing yoga. So I I don't encourage patients to be on the low FODMAP diet. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book, plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. So Dr. B, here's the deal. A few days ago, I let the community know you were going to be back on the show today. I put the feelers out there asking for any questions that they may have related to their gut health. And boy, do I have a list to go through today. So welcome to the hot seat. Let's go, man. Let's go. I'm ready. I'm pumped. First question, 
I am vegan, but a lot of my friends are doing a high-fat keto diet, which they say is good for their microbiome. This seems to be the opposite of Dr. B's recommendations for plant diversity and lots of fiber. I'm now wondering if I should be doing a plant-based keto diet. Uh, before I jump to plant-based keto, I will start off with just keto. So standard high-fat keto is intended to be roughly about 70% fat, and uh, you're cutting down your carbs as hard as you possibly can. So you're cutting down your carbs to 5% or at the most 10% with the intention of trying to induce ketosis. So if you think about the math on that, then what we're talking about is 70% fat and you're talking about 20 to 25% protein and then 5 to 10% carbohydrates. Keeping in mind a theme that we've talked about in the past, which is that carbohydrates come from plants, right? Now, this doesn't mean processed sugar. If you're eating a whole plant, that's obviously not processed sugar. It may contain sugars that could be very healthy for you or sugars that are connected together that form fiber, which could be very healthy for you. So what you're doing in this case is you're cutting down on those plant-based carbohydrates. You're ramping up your animal products to get to 70% fat. What result do we get from this? Well, we know from the study in Nature, published by doctors Lawrence David and Peter Turnbaugh, that five days on a, this was literally a keto diet. I mean, they did not intend it to be a ketogenic diet, but if you look at the macros of what they were eating, this was a ketogenic diet. They were 70% fat, they were 20 to 25% protein, and they were 5 to 10% carbohydrates, purely animal products, meat, cheese, eggs. And what they found is that you had a decline in the anti-inflammatory bacteria. You had an increase in inflammatory bacteria. That's not a good thing. You had a decrease in short-chain fatty acids, which healed the gut, which increased intestinal permeability, which reduced bacterial endotoxin, which healed throughout the entire body, the heart, the brain you had a loss of that. Okay, that's not a good thing to be losing. You had an increase of a bacteria called biophilia wadsworthia that's been clearly associated with inflammatory bowel disease. So within just five days, you're already laying the foundations for inflammatory bowel disease. That's a disturbing thing in my opinion. And there were a number of other things. They saw increased antibiotic resistance in the people that were eating the animal-based diet. And they also saw a ramp up of bacteria designed to produce secondary bile salts secondary bile salts have been associated with colon cancer. So what we're seeing is the foundations of inflammatory bowel disease, the foundations of colon cancer, the foundations of antibiotic resistance from a ketogenic diet. What they intended this study to be is to demonstrate for the first time in humans from a biological perspective that you can use your diet to manipulate the microbiome. And so what they did is they chose extreme variation. I mean, literally, that's the polar opposite, right? A completely plant-based diet versus a completely animal-based diet. And they wanted to show that the dietary choices that you make have a major impact on the makeup of your gut microbiome. And they were successful. They were successful as a paradigm-shifting study that changed the way that I think about human biology forever. So you start with that, and there's a lot of disturbing trends that you see there. You think about animal-based diet, think about a high saturated fat diet and the, the way that it feeds into TMAO, which has been associated with coronary artery disease, stroke, Alzheimer disease, chronic kidney disease, peripheral arterial disease, atrial fibrillation, congestive heart failure, not good stuff. You don't want that. That's the carnitine and the choline that you find in your animal products. And then finally, 
what you're doing is you're building your microbiome, right? So we know that your dietary choices will determine the constitution of your, of your microbiome. Your microbiome is a reflection of what you choose to put in your mouth and swallow. And so you are building a microbiome that's designed for animal products. What you are doing in the process of doing that is weakening the microbiome with regard to your carbohydrates or with regard to your plant products. So now you have a microbiome that's not designed to give you short-chain fatty acids. Short-chain fatty acids protect us from type 2 diabetes, protect us from hyperlipidemia, all these other conditions. So what you have is you have a microbiome that's built for type 2 diabetes. You are built for insulin resistance. You are built for weight gain. Okay. Do you gain weight on this diet? No, because of the restrictive nature of the diet, you are not gaining weight. People lose weight. That's indisputable. But you are setting yourself up so that when you come off of the ketogenic diet, which all people do, you're going to have profound food sensitivity, profound insulin resistance, and profound weight gain. So you talk about yo-yo dieting. Your weight goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. This is how you do it. So I really see no health advantage to the ketogenic diet. You can artificially lower your blood glucose because you're not introducing any carbohydrates, right? You can't raise your blood glucose unless you introduce carbohydrates and talk about that. So plant-based keto is, let's, let's say that we're doing completely plant-based diet and you are eliminating the animal products completely from diet. And you could even say that you're eliminating the processed foods from your diet. That's fine. What you're doing is you're trying to play with your macros and in the process, you are engaging yourself in a restrictive diet. You are trying to ramp up your fat content and reduce your carbohydrate intake. And in the process, you are forced to restrict certain categories of foods in order to accomplish that. And that is the complete opposite of what you and I constantly talk about, which is that we want to maximize plant-based diversity. We want simplicity. We want food in abundance, but we want whole plant foods because that's what delivers from a health perspective. So I see no advantage to the plant-based keto because you're restricting your diet, even though it's plant-based, you're restricting your diet, you're increasing the fat content by restricting carbohydrates. What are you restricting? Fiber is a carbohydrate. Fiber, fiber is a carbohydrate. So you have no choice but to reduce your fiber if you're going to restrict your carbohydrates. And so I don't see any real health advantage to doing this, particularly when you look at the flip side. Why would you do this when the flip side is Dr. Neil Barnard's group and their study, which looked at high carb, 70% carbs coming from whole foods, low fat, unrestricted, eat as much as you want, like have five meals a day, go crazy. And they still lost weight and they still saw improvement of several markers from a metabolic perspective. Why would you play with plant-based keto, restrict your diet, potentially mess up your gut when you could go high carb and just go, just go whole foods plant-based? Honestly, let's not, let's not overcomplicate things with the macros. How does someone know if their gut needs repair? What are the sort of telltale signs and symptoms? There's the obvious signs that your gut needs repair, right? There's the obvious signs. Digestive issues is where most of the conversation would start. So are you having acid reflux, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation, distension, you know, anything of that variety, that's the easiest, obvious place to start. But then, you know, go down the line and look at the different disease states that are associated with damage to the gut microbiome that are beyond the digestive system. So let's look at the fact that type 2 diabetes, that obesity, that even abnormal cholesterol levels, coronary artery disease, 
even with the heart, believe it or not, congestive heart failure, atrial fibrillation, which is an abnormal heart rhythm, have been associated back to changes in the gut microbiome. Anxiety, depression, migraine headaches, autism, ADD, all of these things come back to the gut. All right. So we can wait until disease arrives and then we can fight and struggle and hope to be able to push back that disease to the point that it's no longer a part of our life. Or we can acknowledge the importance of the gut right now for every single person who is listening to this podcast right now. And we can say, this is too dang important. This is too dang important. And all it takes is simple changes to our lifestyle to take care of our gut, optimize it, and reap the rewards, some of which you'll never know, right? The fact that you don't develop that disease, you will never know because you didn't develop the disease. And that's a beautiful thing. But then let's layer on top of that, the idea of these silent but deadly things that can be going on with the body, right? So when you have digestive issues, it's not silent, right? You consume that meal and you feel unwell. You have bloating, gas, abdominal pain, maybe some diarrhea or constipation. It's obvious. It's overt. It's, it's capturing your attention. What is not obvious or overt or capturing your attention is the development of coronary artery disease. And the pathway that this happens, which you alluded to, is through the production of something called TMAO. All right. And this is a complete game changer. This is a complete game changer. And I give a standing ovation to the doctors at the Cleveland Clinic who are the ones who have been figuring this out because the way that it worked, and by the way, the Cleveland Clinic is most people would argue this is the number one heart program in the United States. Okay. So what these doctors discovered about five years ago is they noticed that patients who had coronary artery disease had a high level of this thing in their blood called TMAO. So they started to ask the question, well, where does that come from? What's the scoop? What's the scoop with TMAO? And they worked backwards. And what they found is that it was coming from our diet. Okay. And there's two things in our diet that basically can promote the production of TMAO. Carnitine, which is a component of red meat. And you'll also find it in some energy drinks, which is kind of disturbing. Or choline. Choline is found in animal products, animal meat. It's found in egg yolk high fat dairy. Yes, you will find it also in some plants. The body does need choline. We can't remove choline from our diet entirely. It has to be there. But the point is that basically when we consume these two things, carnitine and choline, our gut microbiota are able to basically transform this and produce something called TMA. All right. Now TMA, if you've ever smelled a rotten fish, that's TMA. Like literally you are smelling TMA when I'm describing right now. But inside your body, inside your colon, these bacteria are transforming the choline and the carnitine to produce TMA. It's never released into the air, so you don't smell like dead fish. It goes into your bloodstream, and it travels through your blood to your liver, where it's converted into TMAO. TMAO has been associated with increased risk of coronary artery disease, stroke, type 2 diabetes, chronic kidney disease, Alzheimer's dementia. I just listed five of the top 10 causes of death in the United States, five of the top 10. And in addition to that, TMAO is also associated with some things that are not necessarily in the top 10 causes of death, but that are debilitating. It's associated with congestive heart failure, atrial fibrillation, 
and peripheral arterial disease. There's like nothing worse than peripheral arterial disease where people need amputations. It's like the worst thing that I have to see. But the key here is that the microbiome play a central role in this entire process. Your microbiome needs to be able to change the carnitine or the choline to produce the TMAO. That process does not occur unless your gut microbiome is built to do it. So they are basically the gatekeepers, all right? So if you take, and they actually did this study, and I find this to be fascinating. They took a vegan who was completely plant-based for five years, and they convinced him to eat a steak in the name of science. And so this gentleman agreed to do this, and they measured his TMAO level multiple times over the following 24 hours. So there would have been a lot of carnitine in that meal. Absolutely. A lot of carnitine in that meal. And, and you would expect that there'd be a significant amount of choline as well. And so he eats this steak. And what is this TMA level when he starts? It's effectively zero because the guy doesn't have a microbiome built to produce TMAO. What is his TMAO on every single data point during the 24 hours? The answer is the same for all of those. It's zero. It's effectively zero. He never bumps his TMAO because he's not capable of producing TMAO with the gut microbiome that he has. His plant-based microbiome protects him. So in theory, if he was to continue eating like that over time, would his microbiome adjust or alter to the point where his bacteria could produce TMA? Yes. So in a subsequent study, and by the way, real quick, in that same study, they had a woman who was an omnivore and they fed her the exact same steak, exact same portion size. Her TMAO started much higher, obviously, than the vegan gentleman. And it went up sixfold. It increased sixfold during 24 hours. So there was an acute change in her TMAO that occurred with this one, one meal drove up her TMAO acutely sixfold. Okay. They did a subsequent study that they looked at, which was Red meat versus white meat, meaning like a chicken breast, versus a plant-based meal. And what they found in this study is that really the biggest problem was in the red meat. The reason why is because you find the carnitine in the red meat. And so with the consumption of the carnitine routinely, you will, over the course of about 28 days, change your microbiome to produce TMAO. So it takes about four weeks for you to really rev up the microbiome. Now, when you withdraw the red meat from the diet, if you were to consume the red meat and then you decide, you know what, I'm going vegan, it takes about 28 days to wash out the effect that you had on the microbiome too. So basically what we're seeing in these studies is that if you change the microbiome, if you change your diet, it takes about 28 days for it to fully adapt and evolve. And that includes when you withdraw something that's not good for you. When you withdraw that from your diet, it takes about 28 days for it to wash out and for your gut to move on to something new. That to me is as compelling and as simple and as clean of an argument as you will find against the keto diet or against the paleo diet as there is out there. That's, that's as clean as it's going to get that by eating this way, you are spiking your TMAO. And this is going to basically put you at risk for Number one, number five, number six, number seven, and number 10, five of the top 10 causes of death 
in the United States. The, the gut is forgiving and it will adapt to whatever you choose to do. And this is one of the big themes when we talk about the microbiome is its ability to adapt to the choices that you make. You're the one who's pulling the trigger. You're the one who's deciding that you want to eat this way or that way. And your gut microbiome will change with you. Next question is from Betty. Thanks for engaging with us, Betty. My bloating post meal is so bad, so bad. I look pregnant and sometimes have to lay on the ground for hours until it goes away. Gosh. What's happening? I mean, it sounds miserable. It's hard to know based upon. So this is an example of a person that if you were reaching out to me on Instagram and you lived in Charleston, I would say, I'm going to get you an appointment and you're going to come in and we're going to sit down. We're going to go through your entire medical history. I'm going to do an examination. There's probably going to be some additional testing that we'll do and we'll go from there. Um, and I will tell you that the things that I think about in a scenario like this, any person who comes in with gas and bloating, I am asking the question, do they have underlying constipation? Because those are the patients that you will commonly find exist with gas and bloating. And what's interesting is constipation causes increased production of methane gas and increased production of methane gas causes slowing down of gut motility and constipation. And you can create a vicious cycle. So if this person is constipated and they eat a meal and they're not mobilizing their bowels, then I can see where you're trapping gas like a balloon and you become distended. The other thing that I would be thinking about in this person is to explore the possibility of air being swallowed during the meal. So any air that is swallowed, it gets down into the stomach. It has to come out one way or the other. It's either going to come out through a belch or it's going to trap itself in your abdomen until it comes out the other ends when you pass gas from below. And this is something that I have to tell you in my medical practice, this is one of the least satisfying conversations to have for both sides, for me and for the patient, because it's impossible for me to prove whether you are or are not doing this. And the patient never wants to believe that they are actually swallowing air. They're not doing it intentionally. Like no one's intentionally swallowing air. So they never want to believe that this is actually real. But we do know that it's real. We do know that this is entirely possible to swallow air. And where I start is I ask questions before even telling them where I'm going with this. I'll ask questions. Do you chew gum? Do you suck on lozenges? Do you sip through straws? Do you drink a lot of carbonated drinks? Do friends ever accuse you of being an aggressive eater, eating real fast? Do friends ever say that you drink too fast or do you gulp your drinks? All right. So that line of questioning that I just went through before I tune the patient into where I'm going with this, those are the clues that I need to know whether someone has something called aerophagia. Aerophagia means that they're swallowing air. And if you were to aggressively drink a beverage, you grab this glass of water and you toss, I toss it back and I chug it. And I'm taking big swallows. Those big swallows are sloppy swallows and I'm bringing air down with it. When I chew on gum, I'm creating saliva. I'm swallowing that saliva. Do you really think it's a perfect process to swallow saliva and not get some air in there when it goes down? No, there's some air that gets in there and it goes down. When you sip through a straw, look at the straw. Half of the straw is below, it's submerged, right? Because it's the water level. But the part that's above the water level, that's air. So you wrap your lips around it, you create a vacuum and you suck it in. You swallow it down, you're swallowing down air. Carbonated drinks, of course, swallowing air. So I'm looking for clues that this person is swallowing air and that may be contributing to this issue. 
We all get gas sometimes. We all get bloating once in a while. I do too. It's part of being a normal human being. And part of it is our approach to diet, which is that we just kind of throw stuff on a plate or throw something in a bowl, and then we deal with the aftermath or the consequences. And so what I would argue for is an increased awareness of where the strengths and weaknesses of our microbiome are, and to basically recognize that, look, there's no one size fits all. Right. So you and I, when we're sitting here and we're saying whole foods plant-based, that doesn't mean that the way that you eat whole foods plant-based is the way that I eat whole foods plant-based. It's different. And there are some people who can eat lots of beans and there's some people that need to really restrict the amount of beans that they eat. It doesn't mean that they should eliminate beans from their diet. It just means that they need to be more gentle. But we all have gas. We all, we all produce gas. It's completely normal to pass gas throughout the entire day. And at what point does that gas production cross the line into being a problem. Generally speaking, it's going to be when it's creating other symptoms, right? So if you're having abdominal pain that comes with it, if you're having distension of your abdomen, then it warrants further investigation to see what's going on. And one thing that I would just toss out there to your listeners is that when I hear gas and bloating as a gastroenterologist, the first thing that I'm thinking about is, is this patient constipated? We need to investigate. We need to make sure. And there are p- plenty of people who poop on a daily basis and they're still constipated. If you don't completely empty, then you are by definition backing up. And so this is one of the big things from my perspective. I, I hate to assign like a specific number of like, hey, you should be pooping this many times a week or this many times per day. But generally speaking, if you think about the fiber deficiency that exists in our cultures, 97% of Australians not meeting a minimal standard of fiber, 97% of Americans not meeting a minimal standard of fiber, right? So we're not doing it. We're not getting the job done. And if we frankly were eating enough fresh fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, and nuts, most of us would be pooping two or three times a day. So I hate to assign a number to it, but the point from my perspective is it really should be effortless. You really shouldn't have to sit on the toilet and strain. You shouldn't have to force it. If you feel like it's not coming out the way that it's supposed to, if it comes out as a little turd or a little nugget, Um, Not to be too graphic and talk about poop, but I guess that's what we're here to do today. The people at home can look this up on Google, the Bristol stool chart. There's seven different types. Type four is normal, and that's a sausage-shaped formed bowel movement. And that's what we want to see. You want to see a nice, long, effortless, sausage-shaped bowel movement that's formed, but also soft. What about anxiety, stress with relationships or from work? Can that directly affect digestion? Oh, big time. Big time. Yeah, no, they've shown that that stress, acute stress in the moment affects digestion, affects motility, affects gut sensitivity. And then you layer on top of that, the potential hypervigilance that can come with a dietary change where you have this little bit of anxiety surrounding a change in the food. And you're kind of fixating on this food like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen when I eat this? And you're so tuned into your gut that the slightest little thing that like, you know, normally you wouldn't even feel, you wouldn't even pay attention to, but because you're so hypervigilant, you notice it, that sort of reinforces your preconceived idea of what was going to happen. Creates a problem. When I was at the University of North Carolina, where I did my GI specialty training, actually, believe it or not, is one of the top eating disorder clinics in the entire country. There is a microbiome study that I'm going to reference in a few moments here that came out of the University of North Carolina. And I worked very closely with many of the clinical psychologists, PhD level. These are doctors 
who dedicate their life, their career to trying to help these people who have eating disorders like anorexia or bulimia. And the reason why I got to know them so well is the amount of overlap that exists between eating disorders and functional gastrointestinal disorders like irritable bowel syndrome. The amount of overlap is virtually 100%. It's virtually 100%. I mean, studies are getting numbers like 97%, 94%. So we see this tremendous overlap that exists between the two. And the question is, when you see an overlap, is it just a coincidence or is there something that's connecting the two? Is there something that brings it all back together that makes it explain the whole package from one place? And so there was a study that was done at the University of North Carolina by this group, by this group of people that I was friends with, looking at the microbiome of people that have anorexia. And what they found is severe damage to the anorexia with loss of diversity. So you're taking someone who already has dysbiosis, you introduce anorexia, there's a loss of diversity with the anorexia. And what they found in this study out of the University of North Carolina is that when you correct the eating disorder, and you reintroduce diversity to the diet, you basically go from super restrictive, which is what they are when they're anorexic, to now you reintroduce the diversity again, abundance. You actually can restore diversity back to the microbiome, not necessarily a complete recovery, but that you can restore diversity back to the microbiome. But I think many people who suffer with chronic illness can relate to this. This is part of being human. You wake up in the morning and you say, I hope that today is going to be a good day. But then you feel like crap. You get some bloating, gas, abdominal pain, a little bit of nausea, maybe some acid reflux. And you go, shit, here it comes. It's coming again. And now whatever you're doing, you're trying to be human. You're trying to have a good day. But your attention now goes to your gut. And you can't get your mind off of it. And you're stuck and you're fixated and you're hypervigilant. And every single little thing that happens now, you're aware of every single little thing that's going on within your gut. And that actually, believe it or not, activates the stress response in your body. You get release of something called CRF. CRF is associated with basically the stress response in your body. And this actually intensifies the pain. You become even more sensitive to what's going on. And so it's this vicious cycle that occurs in these people that have had damage to their gut microbiome. They're hypersensitive, but they're also hypervigilant. And they're activating their stress response. And they get into this vicious cycle and they can't break themselves out of it. And when you think about all these things, all these things that I'm talking to you about, without breaking them down each individually, study by study, just know every single one of these things, CRF release, hypersensitivity, gut motility, even hypervigilance, all connect back to damage or changes to the gut microbiome. I will tell you, people can get over the eating disorder, but their gut is never the same. I have seen so many patients that struggle for the rest of their life with functional GI disorders because of the damage that was done to their gut during this teenage experience of having an eating disorder. Dr. B, what are your thoughts on prolonged juice or water fasting for gut health, i.e. three to seven days? If your diet is poor, then you're going to feel great when you stop pounding your gut with all of these chemicals that are found in processed foods. So I can imagine that doing a juiced fast is going to feel fantastic to the person who eats the standard American diet because basically they're avoiding these unhealthy foods. It's also very easy on the gut because you're eliminating the fiber. But the problem is that the fiber, that's where the prebiotics come from. That's what supports a healthy gut microbiome. 
So you are still getting the phytochemicals, but most juices that I see commercially are heavy on the sugar. They put a lot of fruit in there because that's what people want. People don't want a bitter juice. People want a sweet juice. So you have this sugar-enriched beverage that is devoid of fiber, and you're doing this for several days in a row, and then you're going to return to your old diet. What did you accomplish? You spent a lot of money. You really didn't change anything in the long run. Because when you return to your old diet, it's not like you magically corrected something in your gut and it's going to stay that way. You temporarily changed your microbiome during those three days, and now you're going back to your old microbiome because you were going back to your old diet. So to me, I would much rather see people do sustained, small changes over the course of time than to do some sort of, you know, hey, I'm doing this detox. I'm doing this fast. I'm doing this. And it's like a discrete period of time. And then you go back to your old way of life. You didn't accomplish anything. I'm sorry. Maybe you felt good, but you really didn't get yourself to a better place. Moving on here. Oh, this is a good one. There is plenty of people online hyping bone broth for gut health. Is there any science behind this? And is there a vegan substitute? So this is becoming literally a billion dollar industry. It's amazing the way that it's expanding. But here's the problem. There's not even one study to show us that bone broth does anything for gut health. The studies that have been done looking at some sort of meat-derived broth, the studies that have been done are looking at more like an effect on the sinuses. And so we can't say that bone broth is good for the gut. Now, do people consume bone broth and feel an effect that they attribute to wellness in the gut? Yeah, they do. And you know what? I can guarantee you that if I blinded you, if I took away your ability to know what I was giving you and I gave you a vegetable-based broth, you'd feel at least as good, if not better. I am sure of it. I am sure if we actually did a study looking at gut health, we would find that there are benefits to a plant-based vegan broth as opposed to a bone broth because it defies the science. So it defies the biology. At the end of the day, we have to follow what is, if we don't have a study, if we don't have a study to show us what's going on when you do a certain intervention, then we have to look at the biology and ask the question, how would this reasonably work? And the answer to this question goes back to a study that you and I have discussed on a prior podcast, which is the journal Nature 2014, Drs. Lawrence David and Peter Turnbaugh. This study from 2014, where they basically gave people an animal-based diet for five days or a plant-based diet for five days. And they showed that there were dramatic differences between the two. The plant-based diet helped to basically grow the the blooms of anti-inflammatory bacteria that produce short-chain fatty acids, increased short-chain fatty acid levels, and generally were associated with improvements of markers of gut health. On the flip side, the animal-based diet saw loss of the bacteria that produce short-chain fatty acids, decrease short-chain fatty acids, of course, you're not eating fiber. But then there was also growth of inflammatory bacteria, including this particular bacteria, Bilophilia wadsworthia, which has been clearly associated in several studies with the development of inflammatory bowel disease. So literally within 24 hours, you're already seeing changes that are laying the foundation for the promotion of inflammatory bowel disease with the consumption of this diet. So what's my point? My point is that if you were to take bone broth, you take bones and you boil them, you have developed an animal-based broth, okay? That would fit into this animal-based diet that was consumed in the study. 
how would that be any different? Why would we expect this somehow to be beneficial to, to the gut? Whereas on the flip side, if you create a plant-based broth, I could see the rationale for why that would be good. So, and I, and I truly believe that there's something to a salty, mineral-based, warm water, you know, a broth-based beverage that is soothing to the guts. What it boils down to, to me is if we're going to do this, I want to see a study where you compare a bone broth or animal-based broth to a plant-based broth. That's what I want to see. I'd be willing to bet my money that the plant-based broth is going to win. So next question, I have IBS and I'm thinking about doing intermittent fasting. Would this be beneficial for me to limit the amount of time food is going through my bowel to give it some rest? So are there benefits to time-restricted eating? Yes, I do believe that there are clear-cut benefits and there are benefits for gut health. There's a lot of hype related to TRE that's out there right now. And you see people jumping on this bandwagon and kind of going a little bit wild with it. Like you will see people who are going, pushing themselves, pushing themselves to go 16, 18 hours. And I meet a lot of people who the, the approach that they take is like, they'll, they'll start the fast at, you know, 9 PM and they'll fast until 1 PM the next day. Right. And that's a 16 hour fast, but they start the fast at 9 PM. So they're having food right before 9 PM. So here's the key. First of all, the main benefits of time-restricted eating, which is basically to establish a hard time where you say, look, I'm done. I'm not eating anymore until you know this certain time. And usually that's a period of at least 12 hours, potentially more than that. The benefits are going to be seen most dominantly in the people who have a bad diet. So if you're eating the standard American diet with a lot of processed food and a lot of animal products, you definitely would benefit from time-restricted eating. But you'd benefit even more if you changed your diet. That's the main thing that you should do. This is not the priority over your diet. Your diet is the number one determinant of your gut microbiome. But this can help. This is a piece of the puzzle. There's all these different pieces that you can put together. Little things can yield big results when you're doing all of these things in concert. So I do think that there's value to this. But I, I also feel like people are not getting the idea the way that they're supposed to. The idea here is that it's also tapping into your circadian biology. And what I mean by that circadian biology is the ebb and flow of your biorhythm, okay? And every life form on our planet has this. Every life form has a circadian rhythm. That includes plants, and that also includes the microbes in your gut. So when you flew from Australia to the United States and you were jet lagged, why were you jet lagged? It was because your microbiome was upset because you're throwing off your circadian rhythm because it's so used to a certain time. So it takes you a couple days to reset your microbiome to this new circadian rhythm that you're doing, right? So the circadian rhythm is really set based upon light. The sun comes up in the morning, it goes down at night. That's the way that we were designed. We were designed to turn on with sunlight in the morning. So it's important for us to expose ourselves to sunlight in the morning. And we were designed to turn off or to slow down at night when the sun goes down. So the point from my perspective is this, to get right to the point. The point with time-restricted eating is that we need to be tapping into the circadian biology. And so what that means to me is early dinner. Early dinner doesn't have to be like three in the, in the afternoon. But what I'm saying is let's not be eating at nine o'clock at night. Early dinner, 5.30, six o'clock. If you're going to have dessert, so be it. Have your dessert right there, right after dinner. And then after dinner, it's strict, just water just water, nothing else, no other beverages, no alcohol, nothing else after dinner. All right. You have your water and at least 12 hours pass. And 
for as far as I'm concerned, if you do 12 hours, you're doing pretty good. There's, there is some concern in the scientific community that if you push yourself further, 16 hours as part of your routine, 18 hours as part of your routine, there is some concern that you could increase your risk of developing biliary tract disease gallstones. So it's not proven yet, but there is concern that that exists. And I'd kind of feel like, well, don't push yourself so hard on this. Use some of that energy to focus on other stuff. Use some of that energy to focus on other elements of your lifestyle that you can improve, including your diet, right? But the, the point from my perspective is early dinner, no food after dinner, strictly water, and also recognize a big question that people ask is, does coffee break the fast? Of course it does. Anything that's not water breaks the fast because it's interacting with your microbiome. And once you start interacting with your microbiome, the fast is over. Alrighty, next question. Simon, Dr. B. I'm a vegetarian and having trouble letting go of dairy. I understand the ethical issues and that should be enough, but I'm interested in your thoughts on dairy and our health. There is a lot of information out there on the benefits of prebiotics and probiotics that various dairy products contain, particularly yogurt. What's your thoughts on yogurt? Is it beneficial? The issue with yogurt, you know, I understand the idea. There's a lot, there are numerous studies out there that would lead you to believe that there are health benefits derived from consuming yogurt that includes probiotics. I understand where this person is coming from, but you have to also understand who's funding those studies, right? So there's a conflict of interest when the money to support a study is coming from the dairy industry, because then the people who are doing the study, I mean, I hate to break it to you, but I can pretty much assure you that they're not going to go and produce a negative result. And if they did, it's very unlikely they're going to publish it. They're going to bury it. So there's a bias that exists where the only thing that comes forward is the stuff that shows that there's a benefit. And if you really dig into the details of how they're doing these studies, you will find that they're carefully crafting the methodology to get everything in their favor so that they can produce the results that they want. So if you find a study that shows you that there's a benefit, I would encourage you to look at the fine print at the bottom of the study, which oftentimes will tell you what the funding source is. And if it's funded by dairy, to me, I don't personally accept that study, right? I need to see that this is done independently without the money coming from the actual industry that profits from the result of this publication of the study. The concerns that I have, let's first look at the way that the yogurt is produced. Is this yogurt produced the traditional way, which is to take milk, introduce a culture, and allow it to actually ferment? No, because that takes a long time. That takes a long, long time, and you got to be patient. What's a lot easier is for the food industry to make yogurt and inject a probiotic into it after they're done. That's pretty much what they're doing. So why not just take the probiotic and leave the yogurt out of it? And the problem with the yogurt is it's still yogurt. It's still yogurt. It's still a high-fat dairy product, Right. And so when you look at high-fat dairy, what are the risks that we see associated with that? There's risk of increasing TMAO. We know that from the studies that you and I have discussed in the past. There's the animal fat that's associated with that, which is a saturated fat, which induces dysbiosis. There's increased risk of a number of different cancers. The cancer that's most clearly associated with dairy has been prostate cancer. And then I think about one of the legends of nutritional study, which is T. Colin Campbell. The China study forks over knives. And T. Colin Campbell grew up on a dairy farm, went into clinical research for the, with the intent of proving that dairy is good for us. But he's a man of honesty. He's a man of integrity. And when he found the opposite, 
he had to change. He grew up on a dairy farm. And when he found that casein, which is a dairy protein, increases the risk of developing cancer, which they showed in a model several years ago, he had to change. And he did. And so mad respect to T. Colin Campbell for having the integrity and the audacity to do what is right in clinical research. The last thing I want to add is we just talked about casein. So that's a dairy protein. What's the other dairy protein? Whey. People are smashing it with workouts, right? Well, guess what? Whey protein has been clearly associated with increased risk of TMAO. All right. Now, is it the whey protein directly or is it the stuff that comes with it? You would expect that it's the stuff that comes with it. But nonetheless, they have shown in studies that whey protein correlates with increased TMAO. So from my perspective, leave the dairy. Why would you take that? If you feel like you need probiotics, take a probiotic. So talking about probiotics, that brings me to the next question. In general, are probiotics worth supplementing? From my perspective, I always say number one is diet, number two is prebiotics, and number three is probiotics. And it's in that order specifically. And that's the way I practice in my clinic. Do I recommend probiotics to people that have digestive issues? Absolutely. But it's tailored to the person and it's always after diet first, prebiotic second, probiotics third. The reason why is because every single person, you and I were talking about this, we are 99.9% the same from a genetic perspective, but we could be literally 0% the same from a microbiome perspective. Every single person has a completely unique, different microbiome. No two people are exactly the same, literally, on the entire planet. So what we're doing when we take a probiotic is we're hoping that this, it could be one strain, it could be five strains, it could be 15 strains. We're hoping that you're going to successfully deliver these living bacteria to the place where they're supposed to be, which is the colon. And that when they arrive in the colon, they're going to interact with the living microbes that are already there inside of you in a way that produces a health benefit. In other words, that you have strengths and weaknesses within your gut. And what you're hoping is that you got the right mix in this capsule just by serendipity. You're hoping there's the right mix of bacteria in this capsule that's going to address the weaknesses in your gut and give you what you need to get a positive health benefit, right? So that's the inherent flaw with probiotics is that it doesn't matter. You can tell me that this is the best probiotic in the market. It doesn't mean that it's the best probiotic for you. There's a lot of variability. And so there's a trial and error that needs to occur. Someone comes into my office and they say to me, I tried a probiotic and it didn't work. That doesn't mean that probiotics are not going to work. It also doesn't necessarily mean that you need a probiotic. To me, when someone says a probiotic didn't work, well, then that means that that particular probiotic in that particular capsule with those particular strains in that quantity you know, they're all different and that particular one didn't work for you, but perhaps we should try a different one. And a couple of things for people at home. First of all, the best time to take your probiotic is actually right before bedtime. Okay. Because basically what you're trying to do is to sneak your probiotic, these bacteria, you're trying to sneak it through the stomach without it being exposed to stomach acid. So when do you pump stomach acid? Well, you pump stomach acid when you're digesting your food. So if you take it with a meal, you're going to be exposing it to a high level of stomach acid. Whereas if you take it right before bedtime, dinner has been over for hopefully a few hours because you had an early dinner and you take your probiotic, there's no stomach acid and it just slips right past the guard and gets down to where it needs to go. But they've also done studies looking at the capsule formation. And the bottom line is that there are delayed release capsules that exist that have demonstrated increased efficacy of delivering probiotics to where they need to go. And I will tell you that there's a number of things that I look at when I'm evaluating the quality of a probiotic. And that's one of the things that I like to see 
is that there's a delayed release capsule to get the actual probiotic bacteria to the colon. Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. Okay, next. Should we be reducing our carbohydrates from grains and fruit to starve bad bacterial growth? This is something I often hear with regards to candida, which is a fungal infection, right? What's the, the science behind these bacterial overgrowths and is there science suggesting that people who are diagnosed with this should remove whole foods like fruit? So let's, let's start with this and say that candida is a normal part of the human digestive flora. Right, So we have a balance within our microbiota that includes bacteria, good guys and bad guys, and we have fungi, good guys and bad guys. There's good fungi, there's bad fungi. Candida can be one of the ones that can be a bad boy. And not in a good way, like not like, hey, he's cool and fun to date. <laughs> and can show up in parts of the body and create issues. So like a classic example of candida infection would be thrush. People who you look inside their mouth, you see white plaques. The white plaques don't easily scrape off. That's a candida infection. Sometimes when I do an upper endoscopy, I find people in the esophagus that have an overgrowth of candida and you can see it. It's visibly there. But on the flip side, to use a stool test to check to see whether or not you have candida as if yes or no, do I have candida? Well, guess what? I am 100% sure I have candida. And so do you. And so do all these other people because it's a part of normal human flora. Most of us have candida within our intestine. And for most of us, candida will not cause trouble as long as we are supporting a healthy gut microbiota. In the same way that when you weaken or damage the microbiota, you can have an overgrowth of the C. diff, the bad bacteria. In that same way, if you damage or weaken the good bacteria, you can also have an overgrowth of the candida. This is the reason why thrush shows up after antibiotics. And we know from studies, very, very clear cut, that they are in direct competition with each other. The bacteria and the fungi compete against each other. What does that mean? If one is thriving, then the other one is receding. So what do we want? We want the good bacteria to be thriving. And what we see in the studies, which is very, very clear cut, you give someone an antibiotic, and what you will see is you will see suppression of bacteria. They will drop down. And you will see literally at the exact same time, move in the exact opposite direction, a growth of fungi. And then you withdraw the antibiotic and guess what happens? Here comes the bacteria and there go the fungi. So it's proof of this concept that if you empower the healthy microbes that live inside of you, then you can suppress the candida that is also there and a part of your normal intestinal flora. The concept of using a low carbohydrate diet, like a low sugar diet, to me, I find it to be very misunderstood. So first of all, how many studies exist that show us that a low carbohydrate diet can impact the candida that hypothetically exists within us? There's none, not one. Now, that being said, 
We do know that candida thrives on refined carbohydrates. Refined carbohydrates are in processed foods, ultra-processed foods. Would I support the elimination of ultra-processed foods? 100%. But would I recommend that people who think that they have a, a candida infection remove fruit and whole grains from their diet, restricting those foods based upon the theory that somehow you are feeding the candida? No. You know who you're feeding with those foods? You're feeding the healthy microbes that live inside you. And what happens when we feed the healthy microbes that live inside of us? They suppress candida. That's what you want. I, I'm the world's biggest believer in the importance of our diet. But that doesn't mean that I think that there's no place for medical care or medication. I think that there's a balance that exists between the two. Diet is not a silver bullet that's going to magically fix every single one of our problems. You can change your diet, and that doesn't mean that the thrush is going to acutely go away. So me personally, what I do with my patients is I will treat them. I will treat them with an antifungal. For example, if it's thrush or if it's, if it's candida esophagitis, then what I do is I'll treat them with nystatin, which is local. So they'll swish it in their mouth and swallow it down and it'll coat and it'll take care and suppress the candida, give the good guys the upper hand, knock the candida infection down. But in the process, I also want to support them long-term with their diet, potentially with a prebiotic to reduce the likelihood of the candida infection coming back. This concept that we're talking about here, one area that I think is applicable to this that some of the listeners may relate to are vaginal yeast infections. So I'm not saying that you just change your diet to treat your yeast infection. You have to treat your yeast infection. But then after you are done treating your yeast infection, it's really important that we optimize your diet with diversity of plants, feed the healthy microbes inside of you, and that there is potentially value to prebiotics and probiotics in the gut to prevent the development of a yeast infection in the vagina. The communities of microorganisms that live inside of us are dominated by the bacteria. So they are the dominant player, and they're, they're the ones that when we take an antibiotic, you're causing broad sweeping changes, right? Whereas the fungi are a much, much smaller player, optimizing a marginal percent of your microbiome. And so when you make some sort of change that affects them, you're not really causing broad sweeping changes within the microbiome, right? So, but that being said, I have not seen any studies to date to make it clear cut to me that there's long-term ramifications to taking antifungals. I feel, this is just where I stand right now in 2019, I may change my mind. I feel much more comfortable with an antifungal than I do with an antibiotic. It doesn't mean that I would liberally use them. It doesn't mean that I would use them any longer than I need to. I would use them for the minimal amount of time. And I would always make sure that there's an appropriate indication. I like this question. If I have to take an antibiotic, what can I do to minimize the damage to my microbiome? And should I take a probiotic? So there's, there's this intuitive approach that you will still continue to find in healthcare where, and I, I did this myself, it makes complete sense. If someone takes an antibiotic, you should give them a probiotic afterwards to help to restore the gut flora, right? But the problem is that idea was intuitive and it was based on assumptions. And what happens when we make assumptions? Sometimes we make mistakes. Sometimes the intuitive approach proves to not be actually the right approach. And there was a study that came out in September of last year based out of Israel. And basically what they found is that after giving someone antibiotics, if you then chase the antibiotics with a probiotic, believe it or not, you actually delay the recovery of the colon. So probiotics after antibiotics, I generally do not recommend. 
Now, I will say this is a little bit of a complicated topic that warrants discussion with your doctor on an individual basis. Because, for example, people that have a history of a C. diff infection, C. diff is an aggressive bacteria that often will show up after antibiotics, causes colitis, can be severe, life-threatening in some cases. People with a history of a C. diff infection, there are clear-cut studies that show us that probiotics decrease the likelihood of you developing C. diff. So it may be worth it in that particular scenario for that particular person to be on a probiotic after an antibiotic. This is not just a completely broad sweeping thing that I'm saying here. But generally speaking, I do not any longer recommend probiotics after antibiotics. We have a study that showed us that a person who is consuming a plant-based diet has less damage to their microbiome with antibiotics and a faster recovery after antibiotics if they're on a plant-based diet compared to an omnivore's diet. But on the flip side, is there an advantage to taking a prebiotic supplement? From my perspective, I do believe that there's an advantage to a prebiotic supplement in that setting. So I would do both. I would recommend plant-based diet before, during, after, and then I would also supplement with a prebiotic. But I'm also a huge believer in prebiotics because I just see patient after patient after patient who benefits in my clinic. Oh, I like this question. This is certainly a very trendy beverage. When it comes to gut health, what are your thoughts about kombucha? Okay, so I love kombucha. I, I do drink it routinely, but the issue is that the hype has gotten away from us. All right. The hype is ahead of the science right now with kombucha. People are drinking this, thinking that this is a silver bullet, that you can fix all your problems by drinking kombucha. It's simply not the case. Is it a superior alternative to some other beverages? 100%. Are you better off drinking kombucha than you are drinking you know, some sort of Coca-Cola, Diet Coke, some sort of soda? 100%, I think that you're better off drinking kombucha. Should we be pounding kombucha, going overboard, drinking 16 ounces or more per day? No, it's way too much. I worry about the acidity of the kombucha. Um, it's very acidic. For me personally, when I drink kombucha, it's literally just a few ounces, three, maybe four ounces. And then what I do is I actually add a lot of water and I dilute okay. it down. And one of the things I worry about is the effect of the acidity on our teeth because it can erode away our enamel. So routine consumption of the acidic kombucha can create issues for us over the course of time. Let's not pretend that this is the healthiest beverage that exists. The healthiest beverage that exists is free and that's water. Okay, next question. Why do you soak oats overnight? Is it because of phytic acid? Well, that does help. It does help. I mean, so generally when we deal with whole grains, we are processing our whole grains, right? And the different ways that we process our whole grains, sprouting or soaking or whatever it may be, all have an impact on phytic acid. And you can drop your phytic acid content by about 60%. But I think there's a couple of key points with phytic acid. So let's, let's take a step back and explain what we're really talking about here. Phytic acid, people kind of freak out about it and they call it an anti-nutrient. Um, and I understand where they're coming from when they say that because phytic acid will bind to minerals like you know zinc or calcium or magnesium or whatever, and it'll bind to the mineral and it'll form something called a phytate. And when it forms that phytate, it's basically going to pass through the intestine and it's going to come out. And so you're missing out on the opportunity to absorb those phytates. So people go, oh, well, this is contributing to nutritional deficiencies and nutritional inadequacies. And yet study after study after study shows us that 
we're not seeing that people that consume high levels of whole grains are having nutritional inadequacies. If anything, they are more nutritionally complete. There was one particular study where they looked at different dietary types and the least healthy dietary type was the omnivores diet, which is the way that most people are eating. And yet they're scared of these phytates and the most nutritionally complete diet, believe it or not, was actually the vegan diet in the study. So every diet is going to have its strengths and weaknesses, right? That's just the way that it is. So with regard to phytic acid, phytic acid is only there for that one particular meal. And when you soak the oats, you do reduce the phytic acid content. But what's left over is not to be feared. Phytic acid has been shown to protect us from cancer, numerous different types of cancer, numerous different types. What are we dying from? 600,000 people in the United States per year die from cancer. How many people are dying from a mineral deficiency? I don't know if I've even seen it in my entire career. So I think we're kind of getting ourselves kind of worked up and hyped up about this stuff. We're overthinking it. And I, that's part of the reason why I like simplicity of rules of let's not worry so much about the whole grains. Let's just enjoy them. Thoughts on the effects of sulfur foods and gut health. So when we talk about sulfur foods, I think what we're really referring to are the allium family, which are the garlic, onions, leeks, things of that variety. So what's interesting is let's, let's just take garlic and take a look. And what you find is that garlic has some unique properties. When you slice garlic, you release something that's called allicin. And allicin, which is a phytochemical, has antimicrobial, antibacterial, antifungal, even antiviral properties. So you hear that and you think, oh gosh, that's interesting. Like, could that be good for the gut or would it not be good because it's antibacterial? And what they found when they study this is that when you consume this garlic with this active phytochemical, the allicin, what actually ends up happening is that you are knocking down the bad bacteria, but the garlic actually contains prebiotics. And believe it or not, the prebiotic in this case are fructans. So we've talked about fructans before, which are a FODMAP. Some people want to vilify FODMAPs and make them into something that's bad. I'm giving you an example of where these, these FODMAPs are helping you. They are prebiotic and they're feeding the healthy bacteria that live in your colon. And as a result, what you get from this entire process is that you are knocking down the bad guys you're building up the good guys and you're swinging the pendulum in your favor from a gut health perspective. Now, not everyone can tolerate this because it's, it's a FODMAP, it's a fructan. And so what that means is if you have damage to your microbiome, if you have dysbiosis, you're going to have to ease your body into the garlic. And people at home who have this type of issue, they know what I'm talking about, where they consume a little bit of garlic and they can feel, they can feel it in their gut. You have to find that threshold. And so you have to find that threshold and not cross that line. But generally speaking, the, this family of vegetables, the allium vegetables, are definitely good for gut health. Here's a great question. How long should I aim to breastfeed for and what are the benefits? Oh my gosh, this is such a great and important question. And thank you to the person who asked it. We need to control the things that we have control over in terms of helping to support the development of the microbiome in our children. So the thing you have to understand is when a child is born, their microbiome, they are borderline sterile at the time of birth. And then they have the rapid development of their microbiome over the course of the following two to three years, where they go from basically sterile to the point where they're two years old. Like my son is two years old right now. 
He has a fully adult-sized microbiome, the same size as me. We need to control what we can. And what that means is not doing cesarean section unless it's necessary. We really should be trying to avoid the elective C-section that's unneeded and trying to do a vaginal delivery when possible. And then we also need to be thinking about breastfeeding. Breastfeeding is not easy. All right. I'm going to tell you firsthand, we have two children and my, my wife had to buckle down and work through stressful stuff. There's nothing more stressful to a new mom than when your child is crying because they're hungry and you are struggling to get a latch or a seal with the child that delivers breast milk. It's incredibly stressful, but you work your way through that. That's the first two or three weeks. And the hope is that you can get into a groove, which does happen for most people, and you're able to breastfeed your child. Some people will say breastfeed for six months and then wean them. What I say is breastfeed them for as long as you possibly can. And I'm very proud of my wife who breastfed them all the way up to two years. And so the benefits that you get from breastfeeding, so the breast milk contains human milk oligosaccharides or HMOs. HMOs, in short, there's 200 of them, and they feed the healthy microbiome living within the newborn. So in other words, HMOs are mother nature's way of feeding the bugs that live in the baby's newborn gut. These are prebiotics. So you get that and you get antibodies, which protect against infection. And there are a number of other beneficial factors that you will find in human breast milk. So you want to continue to do this for as long as humanly possible because it helps the development of your child and it protects them. This is the perfect food. This is evolutionary food. This is basically mother nature saying to us, this is what you're supposed to be doing. Now, it doesn't mean you don't feed your child. You feed your child. When they're at the appropriate age to start giving them solid food, you give it to them. But I think you should continue as long as possible. And what we see is that when you breastfeed your children, the child get a benefit. Decreased risk of developing obesity, decreased risk of developing type 2 diabetes, type 1 diabetes, decreased risk of developing allergic issues like asthma or eczema. So you go down the line and there's numerous health benefits. Guess what? There's benefits to mom too. There's decreased risk of several of the hormonal cancers, breast cancer, ovarian cancer. So on this theme of feeding children, more so for older children, Dr. B, would you recommend smoothies or juices for my kids? Oh, that's a pretty uh, easy one from my perspective, which is smoothies are a great way to sneak fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds. This is a great way to sneak all of those health-promoting foods that also are high in fiber, but you're creating a very palatable way for your child to consume it. And what you do is you just don't be bashful about putting an appropriate amount of bananas and berries in there to make it desirable. Even some dates. Yeah, and some dates. And so make it a flavor that your child is going to like. Make this fun for them. Um, give them a big, thick straw, you know, and to the best of your ability, make it something that they enjoy and they relish. They look forward to it. And it's our secret. You know, you don't have to tell them that you're actually sneaking the good stuff in there. And believe it or not, that is exactly the way that I started on this journey for myself personally, is as I started to experiment with changing my food, I went from picking up fat, I'm not exaggerating, picking up fast food. I was the king of fast food. So I was the king of picking up fast food on the way home from work. And when I decided to start to change my diet, where I started was actually substituting a smoothie and I would just make a monster smoothie. And the formula is so simple, bananas, berries, greens. And then you just throw whatever the heck you want in there. I mean, like, you know, I would definitely recommend throwing some chia seeds, flax, broccoli sprouts. You know, I love those. Throw it all in there. But the base starts the same. It's so simple. Greens, banana, mm -hmm. berries, 
and just go from there and make a big one. And I did that as a dinner replacement. And what I noticed immediately is that I actually felt so clean, light, and fresh. And I did not have the post-dinner hangover where you got to lay on the couch and make weird noises for like an hour because you are so beat up like from the food you ate. It, and that, you know, the other thing too, I, I'm a guy who I love ice cream. It's one of my weak points. And shout out to someone that you and I know, 5Sec Health, who has shown us online how to make nice cream using bananas. And I mean, like, it's incredible. Dr. B, Simon, I love your work. Keep it up. My question is, are there any particular herbs or plants that you recommend to help settle a stomach before bed? That's an interesting question. And I want to take it on more of a dietary perspective as opposed to winding down before bed. Generally, I don't want people having big beverages right before they go to bed, right? If you want to have a beverage with your meal or immediately after your meal as sort of a digestif to to help you to process your food, I completely understand. And one of the ones that I really dig is ginger. Ginger is so easy to basically make a ginger tea with a squeeze of lemon in there. I mean, literally, it's just, you know, you could you could grate fresh ginger. And actually, I have this recipe in my book of how to do this with fresh ginger. But you could also just use ginger powder and add a squeeze of lemon to some hot water and you're done. And that's a great way to sort of settle the stomach after a big meal. Perfect. Well said. Okay. Can spicy food kill or disrupt the healthy bacteria in my gut? So it's interesting because if you were to take a step back and not study this, you would think about it from an intuitive perspective and you would think, gosh, if I eat super spicy food, I get diarrhea. And so that must indicate that I'm damaging, you know, sort of acutely damaging my microbiome a little bit. And I can't prove whether that is or is not the truth, but here's what I will say. The heat from a hot pepper comes from capsaicin, right? And capsaicin actually is a bioactive molecule with health benefits. And part of the health benefits come from its interaction with the microbiome. So believe it or not, when people consume peppers, there are actually benefits that exist throughout your body as a result of the interaction of that heat, the spice, with your microbiome to produce an effect. Another great question here. Does alcohol affect our gut health? Well, that's a great question. And what we do know is this. We do know that alcohol, chronic alcohol consumption induces dysbiosis. Very clear cut. We know that the patients who go on to develop cirrhosis of the liver as a result of their alcohol consumption we also will universally find underlying dysbiosis in association with that. And the expectation among the medical community is that that is the pathway to developing cirrhosis from alcohol is through the induction of dysbiosis and ultimately liver damage. We also know that acute binge alcohol consumption is damaging to the gut. You go out hard on a Friday or a Saturday night, you overdo it, then the following day, how do you feel? horrible. Why do you think that is? You think it's that because you're dehydrated? No, you can drink all the water in the world to rehydrate yourself and you still are going to need an entire day to recover. The reason why is because you have pounded your microbiome, caused severe damage to the microbiome. And that damage to the microbiome is also associated with acute alcoholic hepatitis, which is inflammation of the liver related to alcohol consumption. 
Now, does one drink destroy your microbiome? It doesn't seem that one drink destroys the microbiome, although we don't have great studies to prove one way or the other. But what I do know is this. If I pull out an alcohol swab and I wipe it all over this beverage that I have right here, what am I doing with that alcohol? I'm killing bacteria, right? So what do you think happens when you introduce alcohol into the densest population of bacteria that exists on the planet, which is your colon? It's hard for me to make an argument that that's good for you. Now, it's interesting because people will talk about red wine and they'll talk about resveratrol, which is a phytochemical that you'll find in red wine. And they'll say, well, red wine is good, right? Red wine is good. Well, it's interesting. So there actually has been some recent data to emerge to say that resveratrol from red wine can help to reduce the production of TMAO from a steak, right? So we've talked about TMAO and how it's produced from animal products. And there is this assertion that red wine is good for the heart. And I actually think it's real. I actually think it's real. It's been debated, but I actually think it's real. And I think the reason why it's real is because we're now finding that it reduces TMAO production. But what's the best way to reduce TMAO production? Is it to consume alcohol where literally less than one drink per week has been associated with increased risk of developing cancer? Is it better to get your protection from TMAO by consuming alcohol? Or should we just change our diet and get rid of the animal products that are causing the TMO in the first place? You don't need it. And they have shown in studies that the regular consumption of alcohol is associated with increased risk of developing cancer. So why would we play with fire if we don't need to? Now, this is not to say that I'm sitting here and telling you that you are a horrible person if you like to go out and have a glass of wine or of alcoholic beverage. No, you're not. I'm just saying that I would not recommend the establishment of a routine that involves the consumption of alcohol. There's a lot of people, maybe it's a Charleston thing. We like to drink in Charleston. There's a lot of people that will start having alcohol on a daily basis, one, two drinks. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've seen women who develop cirrhosis on two alcoholic beverages per day, and they don't think it's that much. And they're just sharing a bottle of wine with their husband. And I would just tell you that I have seen women who develop cirrhosis on two drinks per day. So personally, I just would say if you want to have a, an alcoholic beverage when you're out at dinner to complement your meal, I understand. It's not a huge deal. But if you are routinely consuming alcohol during the week, that to me doesn't make a lot of sense. Are there any specific plants that offer the greatest amounts of prebiotic fiber or ones that you would say perhaps will give us the best bang for our buck? What's well, interesting. So if you look at what many people would widely consider to be the healthiest foods, they have a substantial amount of fiber. And so, for example, beans are among the healthiest foods on the entire planet. And what's amazing is they're not expensive. Like we need to take advantage of this before the food industry starts raising the price on us. I can tell you that the pharmaceutical industry would pay billions of dollars to be able to say that their drug makes people live longer, even by a couple months. Billions of dollars they would pay to be able to say that. And beans have the ability to extend people's lives. There are studies clearly showing that those that consume more beans live longer. 
improves heart disease, protects against cancer. You know, you just go down the line. There are so many things, lowers cholesterol, prevents type 2 diabetes. There's so many things. The point being that a huge part of the reason why beans are healthy is because they contain a complex amount of fiber. And beans have multiple different types. An example of one is raffinose. And so now when fiber is processed, to a varying degree, it will produce gas because it is fermented. So the bacteria ferment the fiber and the byproduct of that is gas. We all recognize that beans make us pass gas or make us have more bloating, more gas. It's actually to your advantage. That is the fermentation process of prebiotics. Now, I'm not saying that you should go overboard and make yourself miserable. Moderation is a good thing. But the point is that that fermentation process with the bean that produces gas is the exact same thing that's producing your short-chain fatty acids that you want. It's a beautiful thing. On the flip side, other things like garlic, asparagus, chicory root, jicama. The thing is that a lot of those things I just mentioned, like most of us are not going to chew on a clove of garlic. Most of us probably eat asparagus once or twice a month. So don't feel like you are depriving yourself of what you need. The key, I think, is that all plant foods, all of them contain fiber, every single one, to a varying degree. And when you consume a plant-focused diet, when you emphasize that as the way to health, you're going to get the advantage of all of those different types of fiber into your diet, as opposed to fixating on one particular type. Like for example, inulin is what is found in chicory root and jicama and asparagus, inulin. And that is a specific type of prebiotic that has demonstrated health benefits. But there are who knows how many thousands types of health-promoting fiber that exists in our plant food that we haven't even identified or studied yet. So don't worry too much about that one specific type. Focus on getting all of it just by consuming those whole foods. There we go. I hope you found that super informative and instructive. I certainly did, and I'm very pleased we've now got all of this information, incredible information, into one episode. It makes it super easy to share with friends and come back to ourselves whenever we feel in need of a refresher. If you did enjoy the episode, I'd love to hear from you, either on the socials or as a review on the Apple Podcast app. And of course, don't forget, next Sunday, I will release part two of this gut health deep dive, which is primarily focused on specific gut health issues such as IBS, celiac disease, inflammatory bowel disease, etc. And in between now and then will be another Wednesday Wisdoms episode, this time with nutritional psychiatrist and best-selling author, Dr. Uma Nadu. Thank you for hanging out with me again. It's a real pleasure. It always is. I appreciate you. And I look forward to doing it all again in just a few days time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.